M&K Talk YA now presents Grisha Short Stories by Lee Bardugo. This is M&K Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is a podcast where we talk all about our favorite YA fiction. And this week we're doing the basically a random collection of short stories we could find to keep us in the Grisha universe world for a little while. Yeah, it was just too hard to say goodbye. So we looked at all these short stories that Lee Bardugo has kindly written just for us. <laughs> and there are a lot of them, actually. We're going to read, well, we did read, I hope you did too, we, we read The Witch of Duva, The Too Clever Fox, The Tailor, The Demon in the Woods, and The Letter That Mal Wrote Alina. Yes. And we were going to read The Little Knife, but I at least couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't either. <laughs> I found like a uh, piece of it on SoundCloud so I was just going to listen to someone like reading it to me but it was only like the first two minutes so now I just really want to read it but I don't actually know the story. Oh no <laughs> you know I couldn't find it either I, I thought I had it I thought I bought it in my Kindle and then I was looking and I was like I don't think you know I don't think I have it so we cut that one out sorry if you found it we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about it eventually because it is supposed to be in her book that's coming out this month in a collection of like short fairy tale stories from this world. So I think The Witch of Duva, The Two Clever Fox, and The Little Knife. Oh. And then I think three new ones are going to be in it. Oh, okay. And that's called um, The Language of Thorns? Yes. Is that it? Yeah, that sounds okay. right. Yeah. So maybe we'll read that one, that book, a little bit later. Because those were my two favorites. I don't know if you had favorites, but... Which ones? The Witch of Duva and The Two Clever Fox. Oh, No. <laughs> my favorite one was the demon in the woods and oh yeah and the witch of duva okay i didn't like the two clever fox i don't know something about it i really liked but i yeah. think i also liked how it was still related but different enough i think even though at the time i wanted to read like the darkling's backstory and stuff i just I don't know. Like the demon in the woods and the tailor didn't do as much for me as like this new, these new Well, the tailor was kind of just like um, a a perspective switch. Yeah. And I don't really like when authors do that because it just kind of seems like a waste of storytelling. Like we already saw the scene. Do we really need it from a different point of view? I know um, Veronica Roth did that in in some of her divergent short stories. She like changed the perspective and, and I don't know. It's not really for me. Yeah, but we did get a little bit more of her backstory. I mean, like, the events that were happening in the short story were things that we already knew about. But some of her, like, thinking back on things showed us a little bit about her experience in the castle and kind of her choice, why she decided to kind of side with the Darkling and betray the king a little bit more. Should we start with that one? Sure. Okay, let me go to my notes. I didn't really take that many that many notes, especially for the two clever fox. I wrote like two sentences. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I wrote the fox just talks his way out of every situation. <laughs> I liked him. He and he did remind. I think he reminded me of Nikolai a little bit. Like knowing that, um, what's her name, Alina kind of like thought he reminded her of this character in the story and like kind of referenced yeah. that a few times. I was sort of like, yep, I can see Nikolai like the. Like, his inspiration of how he deals with situations is very similar, but... Totally. 100%. Um, okay, wait, are we starting with the tailor then? Sure. Okay. So, oh, it, it opens with um, Alina when she's in a sick bed after Zoya, like, broke all her ribs. Yeah. And... I, for- I forgot that that had happened until we reread that. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, Zoya, that was, like, her first... Like, Zoya broke the rules, and yeah... Yeah, and I did like the a little bit of the backstory of when you see Jenya reminiscing about when she was first gifted to the queen when she was a lot younger. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that she was so young when she first 
became her, um, I don't know what you would call her, companion, I guess. Yeah, and I still was kind of confused by why the Darkling gave her as a gift. Like, that part wasn't really answered to me. Because when I was reading the actual books, I always assumed that he, like, planted her there with more of an intention to use her as a, you know, way to get power. or something. Yeah, yeah. but it kind of seemed like that wasn't the case. And that that was when, you know, the moment that she was reflecting back on when she went to the Darkling and, like, wanted to escape or be free or whatever phrasing she used that that's when he kind of gave her this opportunity to be a soldier and get revenge. I had the same question because I was just like, where did she come from? How did she even get to be with the Darkling? Yeah, I I thought that that question kind of should have been answered. And I was sad that it wasn't. Yeah. But it also um, kind of gave a little bit of an explanation how, remember way back we were confused because we were like, are you born a heart render or can you choose to become a healer or a heart render? And I guess she is a, a corp, corporalki. So she could have been a heart render or a healer, I guess. But then I guess since she can still manipulate the body, like a tailor is another option. Yeah. So and I don't know. that They also described her in that book, or she described herself as like, she was a pretty girl, but nothing special when she was just a Grisha. So that's why she at first was like really excited to be the queen's companion. But I thought she was always like exceptionally beautiful, right? I thought so too. Yeah. But And that's why like as sick as it is, but when she started getting older, the queen started becoming a lot colder towards her because she realized that her husband was paying a lot more attention to her. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was really sad when she was just like really confused about why the queen started to hate her so much. And she didn't understand because she was still kind of a child. Well, and when the queen said something like, you should wear the jewelry my husband gives you. And she was kind of torn between wanting to like cry and ask her for help because this woman had still been like a friend. And she's like, it was kind of like, oh, she knows this is happening. Like, maybe she can help. But, like, I just, yeah, I really hated the Queen's reaction to that whole thing. Oh, same here. Because especially since she was, she was served as um, Jenna's, like, mother figure, too. Like, she didn't really have any other female companions. Mm -hmm. And, like you said, she, the Queen would have been the only person she could have gone to to tell her that this horrible thing was happening. And instead, her reaction was to cast her away. But I also was a little bit confused because at first she wasn't like a servant. Like she said that one day she like came in and like had the white. um, Yeah. Kefta. Yeah. And that that was what gave the king permission to like do what he wanted with her, essentially, because Mm -hmm. she was wearing white. So I was kind of confused, like, to me, like, something with about the chain of events still wasn't quite lining up for me. So, like, was the king interested in her, but hadn't made a move, and then the queen knew this was coming and then made it easier? Yeah, it's almost like the queen just kind of stepped aside and let it happen. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? And I wonder what Nikolai would think if he knew, because you remember how mad he was at his dad, rightfully so? Oh, we yeah. never heard about the end of that trial, did we? No, we just know that Jenna got pardoned. Yeah. <clears throat> for trying to kill him. But, um, but we don't know what happened to the king or queen, except that they were banished. And and the queen, I don't like ever admitted to knowing everything that was going on or like, you know, allowing it to happen in that original half trial thing. Right. I know. She acted like she had no idea what was going on when mm-hmm. really, come on, it was happening right underneath your nose. Yeah. And you were obviously upset about it on some level. Yeah. And you choose, instead of doing something about it, you choose to take it out on the victim. Good job. Yeah. So yeah, that that story just made me mad. <laughs> it really did. It really, uh, dang. Okay. The other kind of different perspective story, did you read the Mal's letter too in the back? Yeah, I really liked that one. Yeah, because even though it was a different perspective, it wasn't a different perspective of events we had seen. It was just like, kind of, it was kind of like a, where's Cassius? What, what I wanted from Cassius <laughs> yeah. back in. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of also, since I sort of felt like a little bit when he first came back and then was like all all of a sudden about Alina, I like had trouble. I was like, so just because she was gone, you know how I was like kind of struggling with that a little bit at one point. Mm -hmm. It was kind of nice to see how he was dealing with all of that while she wasn't there and like get more of a glimpse into what he was going through during that whole experience and how guilty he felt. I agree, especially since it gets... um... You kind of see more of his mentality where he's guilty not just about Alina, but 
he's a soldier when it comes, like, at the heart of it, he's a soldier, and he is raised and taught to believe that soldiers just obey and they do what they're told. And I think the fact that he could have stepped up and said something when she was taken away, I mean, that went against all of his training as a soldier, but I think you really saw him kind of racked with that guilt that he didn't speak up and say something when he knew that he should have. Yeah. But then also, there are two things about that. One, it, he said he did, he like tried to explain to his commander, which obviously didn't help anything. But to your point, like he thought like the way to deal with it was like through the proper channels, which it wasn't. But he also kind of reflected on what could I have done? Like they, they probably would have shot him or like they weren't going to yeah. let him be like, oh, like, oh, you guys are our best She's friends. Mine. Like, oh, sorry, we won't take her. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Or even when he was talking about, like, wanting to go to the little palace and he would just, like, scream outside the gate and she wouldn't be able... Yeah. But also, too, I mean, it's also, like, interesting to see the various perspectives because at no point when she was taken to the palace was Alina ever thinking, oh, my God, why didn't Mal stand up for me? Yeah. You know, she holds, like, zero resentment towards him because I think she knew that it would have been... It would have been futile for him to have tried to intervene yeah she didn't expect him to be her protector in that way no no but you also see him being very guilty because he um he thinks that the one way he can kind of make up for um you know not saying anything before was volunteering to hunt the stag Mm -hmm. and i know he mentions it briefly in one of the books that he had two friends who volunteered to come with him and were killed yeah and they said they probably wouldn't have volunteered unless he had said something yeah yeah, and <laughs> I don't know. He just feels like everything is his responsibility. Like, yeah, I would feel bad too, but at the end of the day, like, that that was their choice to make. And I kind of, I, like, kind of want to know a little bit more about them growing up because they tell us different things about how they used to play and they were inseparable and all this stuff. But because she was, like, so little and sickly, like, did Mal really, like, protect her and stand up for her and do all this stuff always growing up? Because sometimes they seem to act like, I mean, to your point, like, he seemed to act like that was his job, but I didn't really get that impression in any of the actual stories they shared about their childhood or even the interaction we had with him before they went into the fold the first time. Yeah, that's a good point. It was more always just, like, she would describe herself as sickly, but we never really saw her being that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess she's a map maker when she's a soldier. She's not, like, put in the front lines, but... Yeah, but still, I didn't get the sense that, like, she needed him to protect her. Or that, like, I got the sense that they were companion, like, there was some, there definitely, like, a companionship there and a lot of trust and friendship and love that had grown from just being together all the time, but not, like, I didn't get the sense that she was, like, being beat up or, like, couldn't run and, like, he was, like, constantly, like, (laughs) defending her or something. I don't know. I think it was maybe more of, like, subtly looking out for someone because you care about them, not necessarily because they need you to. Oh my goodness. So I think one of my biggest fears though is that friend who got caught in the snowstorm and was like oh right by the tents. And yeah. that like, I like had a nightmare about that, I think. Did you? <laughs> or at least I thought I was going to. Maybe I didn't. But like that, that is one of like being that close to safety mm-hmm. and not making it like freaks me out. And it kind of is similar to what happened to the girl in the Witch of Duva when she went into the forest and then it started snowing and she couldn't find the white rocks mm-hmm. to lead her home. That, yeah, that part in the um, in the letter freaked me out too. It reminded me of, oh my gosh, there was like a while back where Chad and I got really obsessed with Everest, Mount Everest, and like reading everything we could about Mount Everest. And we watched so many documentaries about it. And it just made me think of that. Um, did you read Into Thin Air? I actually have not read it. It's it's really, really good, but um, it just reminded me of, like, that one guy who was on the team, Beck Weathers, who was, he was, like, left for dead, essentially. So he was on his way back down with another woman, and they couldn't get back to camp. And so they were out there, and people sent a team to rescue them. And when they got there, they thought that they were beyond saving, and mm-hmm. so they left them. And he ended up regaining consciousness and just wandered back to camp himself. I think I saw something about that before. Yeah, that freaks me out. Well, so I oh spent a, the summer after high school, I spent three weeks in the Alaskan wilderness. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the weeks we were like on a glacier on a rope team. And like we had to practice like what we would do if someone like fell through the snow and into a crack in the ice and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. You were talking about this before, the arresting. Yeah, self-arresting. But that was mm-hmm. so that was just on a mountain piece. So most of the like hiking and stuff were all like really close. You know, like you're hiking in a group, you're close to each other, you're talking. But when we were on the glacier, we had to be like far enough away that if anyone fell, we'd have like time to react. So we were like all oh, on a yeah. rope and like spaced out really far spaced out and it was like really lonely even though we were all there and kind of like every time you'd hear like someone would pull on the like someone behind you like the rope would pull a little bit you'd be like oh no oh my gosh but no one fell through (laughs) while I was there but I would be so on edge the whole time yeah it was kind of nerve-wracking and then once being in the storm there when I so I spent 48 hours alone and there was a storm and I was like sitting in the little shelter I made and I could see like this area ahead with like some grass on it It was like a little island of grass in the snow and then like the storm was so bad that I couldn't see it anymore and I knew it was like not very far away and it was like why did you do this again (laughs) (laughs) I read Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat which is one of my favorite books okay and and I just like decided he went to like Canada and studied wolves but I was like I want to go like spend time in the wilderness in the cold somewhere one day And then I, like, found this program, and I think I always thought my parents would say no, so I just asked because it, like, I could, like, be brave, but, like, there's no way they would ever let me do that, right? And then they were like, sure, we'll (laughs) ship you to Alaska. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. 48 hours by yourself? Yep, 48 hours alone. What did you do? I, well, I actually journaled about food the entire time. (laughs) <laughs> you wrote down everything you'd eat when you got back yeah it's like I planned out like a month worth of my meals and then I had wow. a I actually had a dream that my baby sister something had happened to her oh no and because I was like in the wilderness and couldn't like get a phone or like I just like had this fear that like it was like our sister intuition or something and like yeah something had happened to her so until I got back to base that time I was a little bit nervous that maybe something was wrong but it turns out I just <laughs> have an active imagination and not a sister intuition <laughs> I bet, I mean, there's nothing to set off an already active imagination than being, like, stranded in the wilderness by yourself for 48 hours. Uh, I need to find my journal again and read it because (laughs) I remember writing about food, but I'm sure I, it was also, it was the summer before I went to college. So for me, it was, like, a great opportunity to, like, kind of think about the next phase of my life and, Mm -hmm. you know, like, who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be and what my goals were going to be and stuff like that. So, and just to go into college knowing, like, I had survived the wilderness, so... You, know. you could probably survive college. You Hopefully could I could survive, survive college. Year. Or I could or I could wander off campus and survive out there. So one way or the other I'd be okay. <laughs> I was in charge of the map one day and got us all like pretty lost, but but that's it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would have done the exact same thing. <laughs> Never put me in charge of a map. So speaking of wandering around in different life phases, let's talk about the demon. The witch of Duva. Or the or oh, the Witch no. of Duva. <laughs> I guess Witch of Duva is a better example, but I was just thinking about um, Eric or Alexander or whatever we want to call him. Let's do Demon in the Wood. Okay. Um, yes. I really liked this one a lot. I liked it too. I just wanted more of it. Yeah, I, me too. And, and, you re- and you really do just get one kind of story about how the Darkling as a child makes what he thinks is a friend and how he's so starved for friendship and then she ends up betraying him and trying to kill him so that she could make his bones into an amplifier. Yeah. Like, if you think about it like that, it's so horrific. And then also, and then not only is he, like, realizing he doesn't have a friend and she tried to kill him and all this stuff, but at the same time, he's killed his first two people, right? Because he hadn't used the cut successfully before. And And he used it on himself. And then, yeah, and then I was going to say, just, like, the way he was, like, he's such a problem. Like, that just also gave me... I felt like a hint into the kind of person he became later on, how he was constantly thinking about like, you know, down the road and impressions and yeah, he, he would, he wasn't afraid to like sacrifice for his goal and like all this kind of stuff. But Yeah. He's willing to go further than most people would be willing to go. But I, I, yeah, I felt really bad for him and I wish that there had been, I almost like wonder why he wanted to help Grisha after experiences like this as a young child like why it was still part of his mission to like like in some ways I feel like I would have turned on the Grisha too and wanted I don't know 
I think maybe he thought that the Grisha were, it would be the only place where he could find a home because people who are not Grisha are so fearful of him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he just, he never had a safe place growing up. So he wanted to create like a safe haven for all the people who had powers to go and develop them. Yeah, and I'm so curious how he got there. Like how yeah. how he turned – just reading about that little short story and the culture at the time, it's like to get to the kind of society where Grisha were kind of still maybe feared and thought of as different, but like also kind of respected and had, you know, an important role in like the army and stuff, how he even got to – how he was able to do all that. I'm kind yeah. of – I like wanted to hear more about – How he started like the second army. Yeah, yeah. Same here, especially since like – he is so vulnerable in this story, you know? He's only, I think he's like 13. And mm-hmm. when the trilogy starts, I mean, he's just so cold and ruthless. And it's just such a big shift from this short story. And I, yeah, I want to see like what happened in the in-between. Yeah. And like, even when he got so excited about staying in one place, yeah. even when he like didn't want, like, I just, I really felt for, like he felt a lot more human than he did in the books. Oh, for sure. And you felt how he wanted affection from his mother. Like, that part was so sad, too, how he just really wanted her to be a warm person. And instead, she was just always so cold and so distant. And she never really gave him the affection that he wanted and needed. Yeah. Do you think she was a good mom? No. Because she protected him (laughs) and taught him certain things, you know, but... I think children need to feel safe, and I think they need to feel loved. And I don't think she gave him that. I think she taught him to be ruthless and taught him that he was better and more important than everyone else, which is super dangerous. And, I mean, she did it in a way to protect him because as a living amplifier, he's always going to be, you know, Grisha are are already hunted and sold as slaves. And, I mean, to be an amplifier, you're even more vulnerable. But I think she just went about it the completely wrong way. Yeah, I agree. But then you think back to her story and you're like, she didn't really have an example of anything else. Yeah, that was... But so, see, so more than anyone in her family, she was trying to help and protect. Like, in some ways, she, she gave more love than she got, but it just, she didn't really know how to do it true. right. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's not what she received, but I feel like in a way, not receiving something can, motiv- can motivate you to give it, Right. It can, but you also have to, I think, have some example of how to do... Like, that's what I'm saying. I think maybe she was trying to love more, you know, by taking him everywhere and training him and, like, helping... Like, I think she was trying to do the things that she felt like she didn't have from a parent, but she didn't have an example of, like, oh, here, let me hug you and let's, like, read stories on the couch. Like, I don't think... You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess so. I just feel like in, in your entire life, you never saw like a mother being a good mother to another child and, and think like, oh, I want that. I don't know. Like just because you don't have it yourself doesn't mean like you don't see any other examples like in the world or from, you know, hearing stories or. But maybe not if you're always on the run and yeah, like, I mean, to some extent. I don't know. I mean, I also, I still, I had more questions about her too because I didn't feel, like even though I knew we knew her story about when she was a girl and killed her sister and there there were other things that she did that made her seem kind of cold, but like when we got to actually know her through Alina, I always felt like she wasn't as hard as she was in the story. I don't well, know. it's almost like, this is what's sad. It's not that she doesn't feel affection. I think she just doesn't let herself show it. Yeah, she's not good at expressing it. Right. Like, even with the little boy that she takes in, Misha, I think that's his name. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you can tell she is a, she has a softness for him, but she just treats him so roughly. She just doesn't know how to show love, and that's very sad. I don't think it means she doesn't feel it, though. Especially to understand as a child, because children yeah. don't understand all the other, yeah. Yeah, good story, though. Maybe we'll get some more in the um, language of Thord. Um, okay, let's move on to The Witch of Duba. Okay. Yeah, this is my number one favorite. This one is this one was terrifying, but great at the same time. It it like reminded me of what's her name? Who's the one who writes Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, kinda of Hansel and Gretel folk story wise, but it reminded me of like a, a Jillian no, what's her Oh, name? Jillian Flynn? Yeah, like yeah. kinda of like her kind of <laughs> like story with like kinda of some of the dark twists to it. 
Yeah, I did not see this coming. In fact, I was reading it and I was like, oh, where is this going? This is so boring. I almost stopped reading it. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, didn't see that coming. And it was like at the beginning too, there were like all these little details and I like wasn't sure what was important and what wasn't mm-hmm. important. And and I still feel like I'm kind of confused about certain things. Like, so her mom, what was her mom's role in all of this? Anything? No. Or just I think that she passed away and that died. like gave an opportunity for the other lady to come into her life. I wonder if the mom played the role that Karina did though. That's what I was trying to figure out. Like, do you think she knew? Or because the dad was traveling all the time, maybe it wasn't as... Oh, maybe because they did say that when he was traveling, he didn't, you know, he he was busy enough that he didn't have the urge to kill people. Yeah. You Uh, know what else it reminded me of? What? When we were talking about Peter Stump. Was that his name? Uh Uh-huh. Not that he actually, but like some of the stuff that this guy apparently was doing reminded me of the stories they were saying. Wasn't that Peter Stump who they said like killed oh, a bunch of yeah, children yeah. and stuff? That did kind of remind me of him because they had like this awful, they had like bodies showing up and they had no explanation for it and they just knew that children were missing and meeting really bad ends and they didn't have anyone to, you know, kind of pin down for it. But I'm still kind of confused about the second wife. Okay. I forget her name now. Her name's Karina. Okay. So she suspected that he was the one killing children? Yeah, she did. But I she think didn't... she knew, actually, that it was him. But she, but I thought she, like, couldn't find proof. Like, I mean, if you know someone's killing children, wouldn't you just, like, tell the police or the sheriff or... <laughs> Turn him in. Yeah, why wouldn't... I think maybe because she didn't have evidence. Okay, so then... And she wanted to protect the girl that's why she got involved yes because or to stop him in general i think she knew that her father was killing children and she knew that he was killing young women and preying on them and i think she knew that if she didn't intervene and distract him that he would go after his his daughter so i think Which she was just also... like observing because yeah wasn't didn't she have some kind of role when the mom was dying she was make the only thing the mom would eat would be like those the cookies, um, yeah, yeah, the cookies. So she, and it's just so mind-boggling how mind-boggling how she they present her as being such an evil stepmother, where it's like anytime the father tries to show his daughter affection, she intervenes and sends her away, and she sends her on these long trips in the woods to get her out of the house, and she thinks that it's her coming between her and her father and trying to drive a wedge, but really she's just trying to protect her from this monster. Yeah, but you, that's another one of these examples where, like, she's maybe doing the right thing, but her methods were, like, kind of terrible at the same time. Well, like, you think there'd be some other way you can, like, like, even becoming really close with the daughter or something and, like, being, like, I won't leave you alone with dad because I want to be, or I don't, like, I don't we'll know. Be, all we want to be together. Yeah. yeah. I think, and she, And then why did she stay there with the husband after the daughter went to the witch's house? Probably so he wouldn't kill any other young girls. But was he actually stopping? Was she actually stopping him from killing young girls? And I then think she so. left. And then when the daughter did come back, or the fake, the gingerbread child came back, she left. Because he because he died. Because what? Because he ate the gingerbread girl, and then his guts like exploded. No, but I thought that the I thought she left before. I thought she left her alone. She left the kid alone with the dad, though. Oh yeah, but I think it was because she knew. That she so was, she did know? Yeah, I think she knew that the girl was not really the girl. And she knew it was going to happen. And Ugh. also, it's one thing to be a mass murderer of children. It's another to, like, kill your own kid. Like, that's kind of, like, I mean, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm still surprised because it did seem like they had a good relationship early on that whatever his compulsion to do this stuff was, that it would it wouldn't like, extend, extend his to his daughter. Yeah. I was reading recently about a. I was reading about a serial killer. That sounds terrible. But I was. Um, my sister in law came over to visit, and she was reading a book about um, Charles Cullen, the um, mm-hmm. nurse who killed so many patients. And um, his story is horrific. He basically like tampered with saline bags, and he would inject really dangerous chemicals and drugs into these saline bags. So like nurses would just grab a saline bag thinking nothing of it and they would send their patient into cardiac arrest and he was like always the first responder whenever 
something happened to a patient. And so he would, he would always be the first one to respond when like a patient suddenly went into cardiac arrest for no reason. And he knew that it was the saline bag that did it. And he was saying in his, they wrote like a, um, a book about it that she was reading. And he said that he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he mm-hmm. just could not stop. Yeah. Serial killers kind of fascinate me. I know. It's just like, it's this compulsion that they cannot control, even though they know they can't and they go and it's like they kill one person and it, they're okay for a while. And then they, he said he just kept thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it until he just could not control himself. It's so terrifying. Sometimes I have like weird urges not to kill people, but like (laughs) if I'm, I've been like at a basketball game or something and someone near me will have a bag of popcorn that looks really good. And I'm like, what if I just (laughs) reached over and took a handful of that random guy's popcorn? I don't like, but I mean, but like sometimes I like, like I've never actually done it, but I feel like I almost feel like I have to do it (laughs) even though I stop myself. But I imagine it's something like that, but higher with killing people and not being able to stop it. (laughs) Well, also it's like, I think it's normal to like envision situations of like, what could I do at this moment that would be the worst possible thing to do? And it's almost just like a fascination with doing the wrong thing. But there's always that part of your brain that's going to stop you from doing it. So I guess in these cases, they just don't have that um, restraint. Or just to see what would happen, like curiosity even. Yeah, exactly. Like, could you get away with murdering someone? Or could could you get away with stealing a popcorn from the guy next to you at the basketball game? (laughs) Or like opening the car door on the highway for some reason. I also (laughs) sometimes have strong urges to do that. Or like every time, every time I'm like cleaning around an electrical socket, I always think about like what would happen if I just stuck my finger in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, the brain's weird, man. We, yeah, we it's, it's always odd. just like doing things that you know you're not supposed to do makes you want to do them more. <laughs> Especially things where you're kind of like, I mean... They tell us not to do these things, but like, how bad would it actually be? You know, like, how much would it actually hurt to get electrocuted or something? You know, like, silly it hurts. Like I've done it. <laughs> I've electrocuted myself three times <laughs> unintentionally, but that just seems like a lot. That does seem like a lot, especially for someone who then still, every time they're cleaning near a socket, because uh, I, <laughs> oh, I know it's just, it's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're just like, what if? <laughs> I'm so close. I could do this right now. What if? I think that's actually the fun thing about being a writer. Not that I'm a writer, but like being able to kind of explore some of those things, at least in your mind or your mm-hmm. imagination and like kind of like play it out. And then claim it has nothing to do with your mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, better in your head and on paper than in real life, right? Yes. Absolutely. 100% yes. Um. I thought it was weird in this book, though, how they the witch bakes a ginger girl. like, mm-hmm. And that was just kind of weird to me because I was, like, imagining this girl, this gingerbread girl who had, like, ropes of icing for her hair and then walking back into town and everyone, like, didn't think anything was wrong. Yeah, they just assumed it was, yeah. I don't know. I was, that was weird. I was confused by that, too. I But I really liked the... Like, if you compare it to, like, Hansel and Gretel, instead of the child-size oven being a place where you burn actual children or mm-hmm. you know, or eat actual children, it, like, was the opposite. It was, like, it turned fake children into real children or half-partially real children or whatever. Yeah, and it was almost – it wasn't a place of danger. It was a place where people came to get help. Yep. I liked that a lot, too. And it's almost, like – People who have nowhere else to turn can find this safe spot in the woods. Oh, man. But what a weird... I mean, do you think she got some good closure after she realized... No. What? Ah. I don't know how you recover from watching your dad eat a model of yourself. Yeah, and then realizing that he... Yeah. And realizing he thinks it's you. Yeah. It's just... It's very messed up on many levels. And she lost two fingers, too. It's not just that she had to get this terrible information. I forgot about that. And also, I thought it was weird that, I mean, what Karina did to try and save her, I think they say something like she gave herself to a monster in hopes of saving just one girl. I was just like, why did you have to sacrifice yourself like that? It's just not, it's so not fair. Like, why couldn't she have done something else? 
Yeah. Or even, I mean, not that this would have been that much better, but even kill him or something when you're yeah, close to like, him. Yeah, but then, like, if you have no proof, I feel like people would turn against her then. Okay, well, poison him or do you – I'm not saying it has to be obvious. <laughs> oh, just, she can get no, some of get the – <laughs> She can get some Taylor cream and poison his body somehow. Well, I did um, research a little bit about gingerbread figures because I had no idea what to research for this episode. Okay. And actually, gingerbread kind of – what I researched about gingerbread kind of fits into this story really well. So I guess the first recorded instance of gingerbread figures being – or gingerbread men being created was back in the time of Queen Elizabeth. So she made gingerbread men in the shape and forms of some of her guests. That's creepy. I know. She would actually make it or like the cooks would make uh, it? Probably her servants did. Okay. But they would like – so if she had like an important, I don't know, ambassador coming to – you know, her dinner, she would make gingerbread men in the likeness of that person and serve them, which is kind of weird because then you're like eating yourself and I don't know if I would like Yeah, that. I wonder if that was just like some interesting power play or if she like thought it was a nice thing to do. Like a whimsical kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. But I guess also um, around that time, people who were like folk medicine people, this is from Time Magazine, by the way. Um, people who would practice medicine back then would create gingerbread men for women as love tokens. And they would shape a gingerbread man in the shape of the man that you loved. And if you could get the man to eat the gingerbread man, he would fall in love with you. But again, that's like this weird, like eating yourself thing. Yeah. And it's also just like a weird way to get someone to love you. I guess it's better than serving your grandma with tea. (laughs) I don't know. There's something weird there about like eating eating a likeness of yourself and then being bewitched. That was my my brief little bit of research this week. I researched foxes. Oh, okay. Let's talk about the that's our last one, right? The two clever fox. Yep. Okay. Um. So I liked it. It reminded me of what's that like Aesop fable or something mm-hmm. about the fox and the crow? Yeah. That's like what the guy kept reminding me of. Oh yeah. How he kept, like, making deals with people and, like, tricking them. Yeah. But I also, I didn't think it was anything, like, his tricks and, like, I wasn't that impressed with him. I mean, or, like, I get, I mean, I, not that impressed, maybe it's the wrong word. But I was kind of, like, like, I really liked when they brought in the Huntress lady who tricked him back. Yeah. And, like, the whole thing about appearances. Like, that's where I thought the story got more interesting. Mm-hmm. But I was, like, amused by the fox just, like, chalking to the fleas and, like, <laughs> You know, do, like some of the other silly stuff and just he, the way he like didn't really care about anything except being clever and surviving. Yeah. And just how he's able to use what he has in order to get by. You know, like they say, like he wasn't the biggest fox. He wasn't the most handsome fox, but he definitely was very clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it does kind of turn really bad for him for a little bit. <laughs> When he meets yeah, that I'm kind of surprised that he. Yeah, th- I thought that was just like a really interesting whole thing. Like he thought he was being so smart, and he's like been observing them, and like thinks he's figured this thing out, and thinks he's making a friend. He's trying really, to help her. Yeah, and really, she's like manipulating him. But then it also made her seem so much creepier <laughs> when you think about all the stuff she goes yeah. like she like you know off she told jokes with the bear what like whatever it is that she does to like lure them in she seems like a serial killer even though they're animals but still no for sure and how she has that creepy cloak of all the baby fox tails so what was she bringing back Mm. from the widow place animals is that what it was I was kind of confused because I thought there was something like one of the lines I was like, you didn't notice that I my sled came back heavier than when it left or something. Oh. But then I, I didn't actually see anything revealed. Or maybe I like totally just misread a statement in the story. Oh, I thought she was just killing animals. Maybe. Because they thought that Jurek was the one who was killing all the animals, but I thought it was her. Yeah, it was her. But yeah, maybe I'm just making up something. <laughs> I don't remember this one that well because I just wrote one sentence down about it in my journal. <laughs> um, tell me your research about foxes. Okay. So I looked up 14 fascinating facts about foxes on yeah. mentalfloss.com. Foxes are my favorite animals, so I can't wait. Do you know a lot about them? 
Um, I know that they mate for life, and um, that's it. <laughs> Did you know that they use the Earth's magnetic field to hunt? No. So I guess there's several animals that have like a sense for, or like a magnetic sense. So birds, sharks, turtles are some examples. But the fox was the first one that they've discovered uses it to catch prey. How? According to new scientists, the fox can see the Earth's magnetic field as a ring of shadow on its eyes that darkens as it heads towards magnetic north. And if the shadow and the sound prey is making line up, it's like able to hunt. It it uses that to hunt it. Yeah. That's amazing. Why don't other animals do that? I know. I like need to do more research about that, but I thought that was really cool. But it also said foxes are actually like really good parents and like really uh. family oriented in some ways. So even though they're kind of solitary, except when they have a family, I thought it was funny that in the story the mom was like gonna was eating like half yeah. her children and <laughs> and stuff. You're like a real fox would never do that. But then I also was reading about so in the 1960s there was a geneticist named Dmitry Belyev mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union who was interested in how we had domesticated, how we had, like, come, dogs had come about, how we were able to domesticate them. Um, So he, like, was looking into how to replicate that with foxes. So um, he bred thousands of foxes to achieve a domesticated fox. And It's the best um, job ever. Yeah, so a tame fox might be tolerant towards humans, but a domesticated fox is actually, like, seeks out human, you know, kind of yeah. acts like a dog. And so uh, you can actually buy a pet fox for $9,000. Wait, Chad and I researched that because we really wanted a pet fox. <laughs> <laughs> you can get, you can have fennec foxes. You can have what? Fennec foxes. Is that the type of fox? Yeah, that you're allowed to have. But apparently they will destroy your house. <laughs> yeah, so that's, so um, 58 years after the start of the program, so Belyave had already died, but there's now like a population of domesticated foxes, oh which God. are slightly different than tame foxes. And they have no fear of humans and they'll seek out human companionship. And th- they call like the most friendly of these foxes, the elite foxes. Oh. And they said by the 10th generation of breeding for certain characteristics, um, 18% of fox pups were elite. And by the 20th generation, 35% of fox pups were elite. And this, now I'm quote, I like dug into this domesticated fox thing a little bit more. This is from PBS.org. <laughs> I'm looking up elite fox right now. I'm Google Im- imaging it. But they said that the friendlier foxes have physical traits that you don't see in wild foxes, which oh. I also thought was kind of interesting. So like they'll start getting spots in their fur and their tails curl. Oh my goodness. And they have floppy ears. Oh, they're so cute. Banjo, do you want a fox friend? <laughs> oh my god, I can't stand how cute they are. And they have so many on little leashes. Oh, I want one. Ban- Banjo's looking at me right now like I'm crazy. <laughs> it's I bet they have restrictions on where you can own them though, cuz I think you can't do it in Chicago. <laughs> You Several states outright ban people from keeping foxes as pets, including California, New York, Texas, and Oregon. Um, so there's this one fox. His name is Boris. <laughs> and uh, this David Bassett owns him or has him. And he's he was, like, telling all these stories about him. Like, he likes to be scratched and he'll run up to you like a dog will. But then he was also saying that they can still be a little bit unpredictable. And this is just a funny story. He goes, you can be sitting there drinking your cup of coffee and turning your head for a second and then taking a swig and realizing, yeah, Boris came up here and peed in my coffee cup. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And I guess they're a lot harder (laughs) to, like, train or manage than a dog is. But it's still, it's kind of an interesting experiment, too, just to think this guy was, like, interested in how to domesticate an animal and how quickly you can do it and all this stuff. And part of the first thing he did was he did, like, the opposite of what you would think. So to prove that a fox's friendliness could be partially genetic. He picked fox pups that were defensive and and aggressive, like anti-human friendly, like the most, the the least likely to be tame and bred Uh those. So he's trying to show the opposite. So he's trying to show like the extremes, like that these things could be, this is partially breeding. Like there there was a genetic trait. So if he bred like if, Oh, okay, just to prove that you could breed certain traits. Yeah, that it was a genetic thing and not like a, you know, environmental 
thing that they okay. were friendlier or less friendly to people. But I don't know. I, like, I think genetics is kind of interesting anyways. And it, But yeah. it, it is just kind of a funny, like, can you imagine, like, I'm going to try to domesticate the fox. And, like, 50 years later, you have 300 foxes. Yes. <laughs> That's actually my dream come true. <laughs> but here's the thing. How do you prove that they're domesticated? Like, what is the gauge for that? Like, you let them out and they don't run away? Or, like, they tolerate humans? No. Like- so tolerating humans isn't enough. They have to be, like, friendly and depend on human. Like, there's, like, I don't know how they measure it exactly. I could probably have done a little bit more digging into that, like most things. No, I'm just curious to see, like, when was he, like, yes, domesticated? Or, like, no, you're not quite there Well, yet. obviously... You could be not elite. So there there must, I mean, there must be some standards for it, but um, they said, like, just being tolerant of humans does not mean you're domesticated. Oh my gosh, I really want his job. <laughs> and also, foxes make a lot of different sounds, so sometimes you should go hmm. listen to a clip of the, like, sounds that foxes make. <laughs> I'll play it for banjo and see what reaction I get. Fun homework, Yeah. <laughs> Okay, do we want to talk about the book we're reading, the series we're reading next? Yes. I'm really, really excited about this one. So, it should, yeah, me what? too. I said it should come as no surprise to people who know we like this world. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. And I'm so glad that we don't have to leave it because we are going to read Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. It's a duology. Yeah also by Lee Bardugo, and it takes place in the Grishaverse. Yay! So we're not leaving just yet. And I have the book. I am so glad that I got this book from the library because it is one of the most stunning books I have ever seen. I ordered both of them last week, and one of them has all black pages and one of them has all red pages on the outside, and they yeah. look so cool sitting on my bookshelf. The, um... The ink, stain, the ink stain on the edge of the pages, it's just stunning. And it has this red cover inside. And then the maps. Oh, my God. The maps are so beautiful. I haven't it's, looked at the maps yet. And the illustrations on every chapter. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And that just like, some makes pictures. such a difference. Oh, yeah, I'll take some pictures. It, it makes it makes fun to read. But they're big. They are. But they're so fun and gothic. And yeah. I love them. No, I'm, I'm definitely excited. So we are going to read up to page 20, nope, up to chapter 20 in Six of Crows. <laughs> page 20 would be hardly anything. Um, so stop when you get to chapter 20, read up through chapter 19. Chapter 20 is Nina. Okay. And um, I'm going to read a little bit about Six of Crows on the front cover. Okay. Um, Catterdam, a bustling hub of international trade where anything can be had for the right price. And no one knows that better than criminal prodigy Kaz Brecker. Kaz is offered a chance at a deadly heist that could make him rich beyond his wildest dreams, but he can't pull it off alone. A convict with a thirst for revenge, a sharpshooter who can't walk away from a wager, a runaway with a privileged past, a spy known as the Wraith, a heartrender using her magic to survive the slums, a thief with a gift for unlikely escapes. Kaz's crew are the only ones who might stand between the world and destruction if they don't kill each other first. <laughs> Yay. I'm excited. I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> but I'm really excited I think excited it's going to be fun. It. it sounds like a band of interesting characters, at least. Yeah. Like a loose kind of uneasy alliance. I like it. And I think I read a little bit about the series or something in one of the interviews I was reading about her and like, Whereas Shadow and Bone were kind of this hero story, I think this is not like that. Oh. This series is more of like a completely different characters, not like someone coming to save the world. So I don't know what they're going to do, but. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to find out. Um, And we're going to take a week off like we do between all of our series. So we'll see you in two weeks. Oh, and Um, I owe you a joke. Yes, I was just about to ask. Um, Okay, so these books that we've been reading um, take place in a fictional Russia. So I have a joke along those lines. Okay. You, okay. You know why I hate rushing... What, nope. Edit that out. <laughs> Start again. Start again. Do you know why I hate Russian nesting dolls? Why? They're so full of themselves. <laughs>
<laughs> and then underneath, I, I wrote, for those that don't get it, it's an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love when joke, you have like a follow-up for a joke afterwards. <laughs> That's great. Did you ever have any Russian nesting dolls? Yeah, I, I took a picture of one for our Instagram. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had a lot growing up, and I loved them, and I loved the ones that got down. I had one that went down so small. It was amazing. Like, I don't know how they even fashioned it. It was so tiny. Yeah, I love how little they get and still how, like, intricate they, you know, how nicely painted they can, or, what you know, like, how nice detailed they, can, they can be. Detailed, that's the word I'm looking for. Yes. So that was my joke for the week. Yay. And um, I think that's all I had. I think that's all I have. Oh, actually, no. I just, I have been reading Warcross because it came out. Oh, I haven't started it. Oh, my yeah. God. Is I it good? I, like, have to cut myself off because I am staying up all night reading it. And I'm, like, losing sleep and getting <laughs> sick because of it. I'm, like, getting a cold. And it's a standalone, right? It's not a It's a duology. Series. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to wait for the second one because the first one is, is so good. I love it. And there's, um parts of legends in it like the legend trilogy that we read yeah there's like a little bit of that Ooh. I know. okay so you have to read it it's so good i do but i'm gonna wait till the second one comes out if i can oh anything that marie lou writes i get so excited for it and like when i downloaded it last night i was just like a little kid on christmas i was so excited <laughs> I love that feeling of having a book that you're that excited about. I'm actually really excited for this next series. Okay, let's go and start reading. Okay, sounds good. Have a good week. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.